0: First of all, the Hebrew phrase, sons of God, it's the word it's the phrase, bene Elohim. Bene Elohim, it's used three other times in the Bible, all in the book of Job. Here they are, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job chapter 2 verse 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And Job 38 verse 4, God is speaking to, to, to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding or who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who are the sons of God in Job? Angels. Angels. The only other time the phrase bene Elohim is used in the Old Testament refers specifically to angels. There's another passage, Daniel chapter 3 verse 35, where the word bar Elohim is used, son of God. You may remember the story Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. They look inside, and there's a fourth one that looks like a Bar Elohim, son of God. It's a theophany, or a Christophany, an appearance of, of Jesus in the Old Testament. But even there, we're not talking about a human being. The phrase in the Old Testament, sons of God, never refers to man. Unless it does in. Genesis chapter 6, and I don't believe it does. Second point on this, the New Testament commentary on this verse is very challenging for us. Listen to this, Jude verses 6 and 7. Jude writes and tells us that angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That would be the tribulation. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Strange or flesh that is other than, different than. Not the right kind of connection. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter said, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Literally, Tartarus is the place. It's not Sheol. It's not Hades. It's, it's a special holding cell, the abyss, where these horrid, heinous angels are being held in darkness. Peter says, reserved for the judgment. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The spirits in prison. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now Peter's telling us about these spirits. About these angels who were disobedient in the days of Noah. During, he says, the construction of the ark. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, indicates the release of these same demonic fallen angels during the tribulation. And that's a fascinating study. Finally, we have the Hebrew phrase, sons of God, bene Elohim. We have, secondly, the New Testament commentary on these particular angels. And finally, we have something even more bizarre, and that is the offspring of of this unnatural union of the sons of God and the daughters of men. These offspring were called the Nephilim. Look at verse 4. Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is a place now... (laughs) You guys are going to think I'm a freak about this stuff. But I'm beginning to, to realize that the King James Version is a much more accurate translation of the scriptures than I ever, ever knew before. Because as I compare and study, oftentimes the King James will give a more correct interpretation, even than in the New American Standard Bible, which is a specific word for word. And a little side note for you, the reason is that the New American Standard Bible and every Bible translated after 1902 was translated based on different Greek texts than the King James was I'll do a little more study on that and get right back to you, okay figure this one out it's going to be these and and yees and in big trouble anyway, this phrase, this word the Nephilim, if you were reading the King James Version it would say the giants giants were in the earth in those days giants mighty men of renown now, we read that and we think well that's cool, men of renown heroes, right? The problem is that men of renown, human renown, is nothing heroic in the eyes of God. Men of greatness, splendor, glory. Men who thought very highly of themselves, who were also giants. Somehow, the connection of the sons of God and the daughters of men created monsters. What Chuck Smith referred to as a, hu- a super race of humans. Giants. Something amiss. A <laughs> A mutation something that was not supposed to be. Nephilim, actually, or Nephilim, is difficult to translate. But the two meanings that tend to come out, there is another word, Nephal, which literally means fallen. And so Nephilim may mean fallen, which also would explain the idea of a fallen angel. But it also means giants. Genesis 6.4, in the King James Version, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them and the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown the idea that these men of renown were of gigantic uh, stature is supported by a later appearance in scripture this is also penned by Moses in Numbers chapter 13 verse 33 the Israelites are backed up to Kadesh Barnea they are about to cross into the promised land the, short, the, the trip has been short. It's been wonderful. They've been protected. They've seen amazing God moves like the parting of the Red Sea and, and the wiping out of Pharaoh's army, the ten plagues of Egypt, overwhelmed of wonderful stuff. And they get up to canaan Barnia and they send spies into the land. And when the spies come back, the people's hearts fail. And it was at that moment that God looked at Israel and said, You guys need a little lesson in dependency. So we're going back in the desert. And in 40 years, your children will learn what it means to be dependent upon me. But Numbers 13.33 tells us, these are the spies coming back and recording the people, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak apparently are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Listen to this. The progeny, the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, were specifically mentioned here as giants who are closely tied into the universal corruption and widespread violence and the sexual aberrations of man. This was not just intermarriage between believers and non-believers. This was intermarriage, sexual union that resulted in the Nephilim. Intermarriage wouldn't cause that kind of result. How did that get through the flood? That's a good question for another study. Okay. <laughs> when we get to numbers, we'll talk about that. You may ask, though, how could this be? What's, what's the deal? And and quick answer to you on that, Bill, is what happened was these were the sons of Anak that were seen, and the spies saw them and said, they're the Nephilim. Well, the spies were aware of what the Nephilim were in the past, having known Scripture. And I think we're making a comparison, but I'll also study that more, and we'll figure it out. But you may say, okay, it's it's still bizarre when we think of angels. We think of fluffy, fluttery, you know, in untangible or intangible beings. We think of spirits. We don't think of someone that could, uh, an angel that could actually come down and, excuse me, but have sex with a woman. If we think of angels that way, we don't think of them the way they're presented in the Bible, because oftentimes in the Bible, angels are in flesh. If they aren't fleshly creatures, which I I do believe they're spirit, but they apparently have the ability to put on flesh, to walk in or wear flesh. It's interesting, Genesis chapter 18, verse 8, they come some angels and meet with Abraham, and they eat with him. Just like you and I would eat. He prepares a full meal and they have a meal with him. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. You don't even know. Because they look so much like us. The other thing that's interesting is angels throughout the Bible are never, and this just makes me mad, Christmas time, see the angels popping up everywhere. Two big mistakes with angels. They're not little cute cherubs. Little naked babies flying around with these tiny little wings. Those are not angels. They are also not Victorian lace-covered fluffy women. You know, little hearts. Angels would scare the socks off of you if we actually saw them. When Mary saw the angel at the birth of Jesus or before his birth, it freaked her out. Every time angels appeared, they had to say, hey, don't be afraid, because it was like, oh. A cherub, a little baby angel, would not cause someone to go, oh. You go, oh, that's cute. (laughs) You can fly around there. (laughs) Angels in scriptures are always male, by the way. There's not a single instance in scripture where an angel is referred to as female. I don't know why, but that's interesting.
1: Two possibilities about how this sons of God, daughters of men thing could happen. Number one is it is what it
0: is. Angels, married, had sex with, relations. Fallen angels, demons intermarried with women it actually happened that's one possibility the other possibility if that one's difficult for you and I'm finding with, with studying the Bible that very little is difficult for me to believe anymore because it's so amazing and if the Bible says it, it is what it is but the second possibility is this demonic possession of human bodies how does that work? An excellent book I would recommend to you called The Genesis Record by uh, Henry, I believe it's Henry Morris. The Genesis Record. He also co-wrote with a guy named John Whitcomb The Genesis Flood. Two outstanding books. These guys are scientists. They're not biblical. Well, they're biblical scholars now. But they began as scientists who began to study and and try to understand these things. Morris right now is the... the, um, What's the word? He's the head of the uh, Institute for Creation Research. But in his book... The Genesis record regarding the difficulty of angel and human sexual relations, Morris writes the following. He says a solution may consist in recognizing that the children, the Nephilim, were true human children of truly human fathers and mothers, but that all were possessed and controlled by demons. That is, these fallen angelic sons of God accomplish their purposes by something equivalent to demonic possession, indwelling the bodies of human men and also taking or possessing the bodies of the women as well. You'll notice in the writing that these sons of God took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, some say, well, it says they took wives for themselves, and so it was just marriage, and so it was just intermarriage. That's all we're talking about. The word wives there is not wives. It's the Hebrew word isha, woman. It's what Adam called Eve when he first saw her. Adam being ish, man, and woman, isha. And that's the word that's used here. So a literal translation would be that they took women for themselves, whomever they chose. Sounds kind of like rape to me. That these demon-possessed, if that's the case, men were going out and grabbing any woman they could get their hands on, that the demons were doing this. But why would children born of demon-possessed parents be giants? Morris tells us some more. He tells us there are two basic causes of variations in physical characteristics of people, recombinations and mutations. He writes, having gained essentially complete control over the minds and bodies of these antediluvian, antediluvian is just pre-flood, of these pre-flood parents, these fallen demonic angels could then by some genetic manipulation cause their progeny to become a race of giants which then would be under their control and possession as well. Now, maybe 20, 30, 40, 100 years ago, that would be kind of hard to believe or hard to understand, but we live in a day, folks, where cloning takes place, where human beings have some... We have figured out how to manipulate genetics. we figured out how to do things to external genetic manipulation in our world today. Now, if, if we can do that today... How much more do you think demonic angels might be able to do? They you think maybe they could figure out a way to manipulate the genetics of the children as they're possessing the parents, and then they possess the child's well. Well, why would they want to do that? Why would demonic angels do this dastardly deed? Why would they indwell men and then grab women and indwell the women and then create children and indwell the children, all the while creating genetic mutations which made them giants in the land? Why would they do that? Eliminate man. To create an army of demonic people across the face of in the earth. earth and to eliminate man to get mankind to the point where they had complete and total control and even a thing further listen to this folks and, and listen close to corrupt the bloodline of Adam so as to destroy God's promise what was God's promise? that one would come that the woman's seed would destroy the serpent who was given that promise? Satan was It was Satan in the garden that God was cursing when he said, You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Her seed will crush your head. And we talked about this before. Her seed. A woman doesn't have seed. She has eggs. Yeah, it's a miraculous seed of a woman. Jesus Christ. And somewhere down the line of Adam, through the line of Seth. See, he tried to destroy it with Cain and Abel. By entering Cain. By bringing Cain to murderous sin. He tried to destroy the bloodline there. It didn't work. Adam and Eve had Seth, and now a new bloodline. And God sidestepped, once again, Satan's attempt to destroy. And so Satan comes back around, and here we are in the days of the Nephilim, and he's trying to destroy the bloodline again. Man, if you can corrupt the bloodline, Jesus can't come, and the righteous guys like Enoch and Noah will never be saved. God's whole house of cards comes crashing in. The problem is that Satan doesn't understand that God's house of cards is made of pretty tough stuff. And he doesn't have the power to bring it all down. Second sign of the times, the propagation or procreation of evil. So what about today? How does that compare in today's world to Noah's world? Well, we already mentioned genetic engineering and cloning. I think it's very interesting that that's happening in today's age, that we are at a point where we can manipulate where humans can manipulate what a child will be. That's frightening. And it's similar to what I believe the demons were able to do in Noah's day. Morris also says, in the Genesis record, he said, spiritism, witchcraft, and other forms of occultic belief and practices, even Satanism itself, which, you know, we talk about Satanism today and we just accept it. Oh yeah, Satanism. There are Satanists out there. Folks, there are Satanists out there. I mean, that should frighten us. It doesn't, because we're so used to it. Ah, the New Age Movement. Yeah, there's a Church of Wicca. You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff, especially up in the Northwest. That's okay. It's just, you know, they're just out doing their thing. Even Satanism itself, Morris says, are captivating the minds and bodies of multitudes today, especially young people, especially them. What's scary is that he wrote that in 1976 nearly 30 years ago. How much more do we see it going on right now? The FBI has a massive file on Satanism in America. Massive. They watch it and study it because it is linked to violent crimes and the link there is breathtaking. You begin to, to track, and, and maybe there's a study someone wants to go after someday. I don't have time. Look at murders. Look at hate crimes. Look at violence in the world. And you tell me, Is there a connection to Satanism? In many instances, there absolutely is. The propagation or procreation of evil. And again, I say, occultic practices especially have a comfy home in the Northwest. And this brings us to the third sign of the times, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It just gets darker. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Folks, that's the only time where God repented. The Bible tells us the Lord does not repent. But in the original language right there where it says the Lord was sorry, it said the Lord repented that he had made man. That's how bad it truly was. Third sign, the proliferation now of evil. Not just the procreation or the propagation of evil, but that it was being borne out in, in people's lives. It was spreading in bloodlines, but that it, just, it was prol- proliferating. Evil was out of control all over the place. The language here specifically is referring, by the way, to evil imaginations. And today, what are we hooked on in our culture but evil images? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I've told you this. But I think I mentioned it just last week. The number one industry in America, number one industry is not it's not computers. You know, it's it's not shipbuilding or airplane building. The number one industry, what our country does best and does most, is entertainment. The number one industry within the entertainment business is pornography, and I'm not talking even about. Softcore, I'm talking about hardcore pornography, is the number one business in the entertainment business. And the fastest growing, fastest growing industry within the hardcore pornography industry is snuff films. Now I don't know how many of you know what snuff films are, but basically it's filming man and a woman having sex together and literally the man murders the woman in the act of sex. And it is videotaped, and it is filmed, and it is growing at a massive rate. It's done for real. And it is for real. The murder is not pretend; it's actual. A woman dies, and and people buy this stuff, and you can get it on the web, and it is horrifying. What about today? The proliferation of evil. Now you may say, "Well, that's, that's the seedy underground." I mean, isn't it? Well, that's kind of what Israel thought. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. That's an interesting passage. And you see this all throughout Kings, what the Israelites were doing. It tells us that it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And they walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly, secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And they set up images and groves in every high hill under every green tree. And there they burned incense in all the high places, as did the heathen, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. They served idols, where the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. What are we talking about here? The actions of the children of Israel throughout First and 2nd Kings, you see it happening over and over, is they go up to these high places where they plant or they discover groves of trees. And in the secret hidden places, they practiced unmentionable evils. They sacrificed to other gods <laughs> They sent up incense. They had strange occultic practices that they were getting into. But, you know, it was away from the synagogue, away from the temple. It was up in the high place where they couldn't really be seen and where the groves of trees surrounded them secretly. And that's kind of where our history has been, even in America. used to be that when it came to pornography, that the only way to get it was to put on a trench coat and a hat and dark glasses. I'm not saying this from experience or anything. <laughs> but to go off to a porn store somewhere and, and, and buy it and try to secret it home. You know? It, it was, you didn't want to be seen going in and out of one of those places. That was the dregs of society. And so those who were not in the quote unquote dregs of society but went after that stuff anyway had to protect it, hide it. Not anymore. Not anymore. You can download it in the comfort of your own home. In America, we call this freedom of expression. We call it freedom of speech. We call pornography art. And we are very much like the days of Noah in the proliferation of evil. Well, yeah, but... I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still not the main people out there. It's still kind of the underground that does these things, right? That's exactly what they said in Noah's day. Same thing. And that's exactly the attitude that Jesus warned against. Well, are they going to be eating and drinking, getting in marriage, getting married? You know, the world is going on as it always has. And even the believers, to some degree, ignoring the truth about the world in which we live. I'm just saying, be warned, be wise, be watchful. Keep your eyes open. There's something interesting here, and it's a side note. We need to go down. Look at verse 8. Actually, let me go back a second. Did we skip something? Okay, verse, let's go back to verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man in the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Apparently, even the animals had become corrupted. Not that they could be sinful themselves, not having any sense of morality right or wrong, but there was a corruption in planet Earth that that even went beyond humanity, and I don't even want to think about what that may have been. But the Lord was sorry that he made them. In verse 8, it tells us, suddenly in all this darkness, and I'm thankful for this, a little glimmer, a little spot of hope, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I want to go on a little side note here because this is just interesting to me. We could call this the protection of Noah. You could also call this the pulling out of Enoch. Now, go with me on this. Genesis 5.24 says the following. Enoch walked with God he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Okay? Why did God take Enoch? Because he walked with him. Because he believed. Because he was blameless. And so God took a hold of Enoch and just said, "Come on home with me today." Then we come to verse 9 and it tells us Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Why did Enoch get raptured but Noah get left behind? And what is really going on here? Listen closely. If Noah walked with God and Enoch walked with God, why didn't didn't God just rapture them both, pull them both out? Why did Noah have to go through the flood? He was protected in the ark through the flood, but he still went through the flood. Enoch got pulled out ahead of time. What's the difference? Listen, God needed Noah on the earth. He needed Noah on the earth to survive the flood as flesh and blood, as God's means of fulfilling the promise that one would come to crush the serpent's head. By that time, God literally couldn't pull Noah out. Even if Noah deserved, like Enoch, to be pulled out, he couldn't do it. Because he needed Noah to be on earth to fulfill his promise. Now listen to this. Enoch, the first raptured person, is a type or a picture of the church, of you and I, of believers in Christ. People who will be pulled out before the next deluge, which is not a deluge of water, but is a deluge of wrath. Enoch is a picture or a type of the church. Noah, on the other hand, is a picture or type of Israel. What are you saying. Revelation chapters 11 and 12 reveal that a remnant of Israel will believe in Jesus and will be saved during the tribulation, that seven-year period at the, end of the year, at the end of the age. And that this same remnant of Israelites will be protected during the last three years of that time of judgment and wrath. But it won't be like walking on water. They're going to have some trials. It will be hard, but they will be protected through the tribulation in the same way that Noah was protected through the flood. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 tells us, It will come about and all the land declares the Lord that two parts of it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people and they will say, The Lord is my God. In other words, one third of Israel will survive Believing in God will survive the tribulation, two thirds of Israel will die in the tribulation. Israel's greatest holocaust is yet to come. But one third will be saved. Interesting note when the remnant of Israel flees to a place of protection in the wilderness, Satan attempts to wipe them out. Anyone have a guess as to how he does it? Flip in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Can I give you a chance? Let's read it. Revelation chapter 12, the very other end of your Bible. Verse 13. Now, very quickly, there is, there is some beautiful language being used here. The woman in this passage, and, and I can tell you more about this later if you haven't studied this before. The woman is Israel. Okay, the dragon is Satan. Listen closely. Verse 13 in Revelation chapter 12. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down, thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That male child is Jesus. Verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time, which is three years, three and a half years, sorry, from the presence of the serpent. Verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. (laughs) Satan's going to have his own little flood. Only his will be regional and not worldwide. He doesn't quite have the power to pull off a worldwide flooding event. Verse 16. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now back to Genesis. Interesting. The attack on Israel will be an attack of a flood. But this is how Satan's going to try and take Israel out. But back to this thing. Noah had to go through the flood to save mankind. To fulfill the promise of God, Israel has to go through the tribulation, protected, and a third will make it through alive, protected and safe, but they have to go through the tribulation. Why? One reason is obvious because they rejected Christ. But the other reason is because they are key to the promises of God being fulfilled. They have to go through the tribulation and come out the other side because God said that's exactly what's going to happen. He made a promise. God made a promise to mankind that he would bring a deliverer who would crush the serpent's head. And so he brought Noah through the flood to fulfill his promise. In the same way, he will do the same with Israel. He will bring Israel through the flood of the tribulation, and through doing that, he will fulfill his promise. By the way, according to a report released by the Federal Bureau of Investigation on Fox News, I heard this just uh, the other day, just on the 15th. Is that yesterday? What's today? What's today? So yeah, yesterday, wow. Hate crimes, hate crimes were down in 2002. They just had the statistics finally come out for that. So in 2001 we had 9/11 toward the end of the year. 2002 hate crimes took a serious drop. And they mentioned that there was fear that crimes against Muslims and Arabic people would rise following 9/11. You would almost expect it. Let the record speak. There were 155 anti-Islamic hate crimes in 2002, down from 481 the year before. So there was a dramatic drop in anti-Islamic hate crimes following 9-11. Now, I'm not... Don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm treading on thin ice to say this, but that surprises me. Because you would think in a country whose Twin Towers were taken down by Islamic militants that there would be more people who got afraid or freaked out or worried about Muslims now maybe not to the extent of taking out hate crimes but you know what happened in 2002 America embraced Islam is that weird to anybody else books on the the Koran and books on Islam flew off the shelves and not just the books that were written by Christians talking about what was really going on no people just the fascination with Islam I, I don't get it There's something evil, a proliferation of evil going on there. By the way, in contrast, 155 anti-Islamic hate crimes in 2002. There were 931 anti-Jewish hate crimes in 2002, which was similar to that of the previous year. So Jews are continuing to take it on the chin. Why? Because Satan hates them. Because Satan knows that they remain an integral part of God's prophetic program in the last days. So, all that to say, just as Noah remained on the earth and protected, protected through the flood to provide for the fulfillment of God's promise of the first coming of Messiah, so Israel will remain on the earth, protected through the time of the wrath, providing for the fulfillment of God's promises regarding the second coming of Messiah. People ask, well, how do you know Enoch represents the church and Noah represents Israel? Look at the facts. Enoch is pulled out. He walks with God. He is saved. He's rescued before the flood ever comes on the scene. But Noah goes through the flood to fulfill a promise. God has promises to Israel that need to be fulfilled, and he will do so. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Folks, Noah's day was filled, little that word filled is overflowing, satiated, or fat with violence. I mean, it was bulging at the seams with violence. In verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. The fourth sign is the prevalence of violence. The prevalence of violence. Back in the beginning, think about this. God commanded man. And he told us one thing. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. How did man, How was man told to, to subdue the earth? To fill it and be fruitful. And we spoke of this before. That fruitfulness is more than just physical procreation. It's, it's fruit, spiritual fruitfulness. Like the fruit of the spirit. The man was to take this, this relationship with God and be fruitful with it and share it and, and ex- express it, expand it across planet Earth. But instead, the Earth wasn't filled with fruitfulness, it was filled with violence. Man went in the opposite direction. Before Adam was even a distant memory, the Earth was now filled with fruitfulness but violence. Speaking of violence, I'll just throw this out. I, I don't know if there's a connection, but it's interesting. The Hebrew word for violence here is interesting. It's Hamas. Hamas. How's planet Earth doing today with violence? Comparing our days to the days of Noah, how are we doing with violence? Folks, by the way, for those who try to say the flood was only a local phenomenon, verse 13 dispels that myth. The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. It's not from the earth. The, the word there is very specific. With the earth. I am going to destroy man with the earth. Now there are those who say there's just kind of a, a, a little regional flood that happened. That Noah's flood wasn't a world. No. It was worldwide. God flooded the entire world. Baptized it, if you will. The whole world to clean it out completely God told Noah that he would destroy man with the earth Peter Peter, by the way later confirms this 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 6 said the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water and all geologic evidence points to a worldwide catastrophic flood folks Noah lived in dark and desperate times he did and I realize that even in our study right now, when you begin to compare the days of Noah to the days we live in, it gets dark. And it's hard. To, I mean, it's not encouraging. <laughs> it's not. I came here knowing it would not be encouraging. You didn't. I apologize. But it's the truth of Scripture here. We see these four signs. Now, what I want to do is I want to get us through the end of the chapter. And we can do this. There's, we'll actually move very quickly. I've noticed this is kind of typical in, in our studies that we spent, you know, tend to spend like an hour, hour and a half on two verses and then we rush through the last one. That's what we're going to do here. Genesis 6, verse 14, so stick with me. Some interesting things to know. God is now speaking with Noah about the signs of his times. He's going to destroy the earth. He tells Noah this. And in verse 14, God says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Pitch. That's that's interesting. Um, <laughs> the Hebrew word translated pitch is kahar. So, listen to this. Leviticus chapter seventeen, verse eleven. In Leviticus, God is giving the commandments, and He says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls." For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The word atonement is kafar. It's the same word. The word that we see translated pitch, and we think of pitch, this black gooey stuff that Noah must have spread all over the inside and outside of the ark, maybe. But the word for it is literally the word atonement. Now that word atonement, when you see Noah being told by God to cover the ark with pitch, that's the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture, that this word is used. Now we go back to a biblical study, a study principle, and that's the principle of first mention. When something is mentioned for the first time, it bears significance many times. So the principle of first mention, the first time pitch or atonement is mentioned, is Noah covering the ark. And you see, that's what atonement is. It's covering. In the same way that Noah took this pitchy covering for the ark to keep the deluge of judgment out, This word kaphar is a picture of the atoning blood of Jesus which covers our souls and protects against the flood that's coming that's the deserved wrath of God. We get covered over like the ark was. We get get atoned for. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us according to the law one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus shed his blood to atone for us. Pitch to cover us. Jesus' blood is God's way of saying, I've got you covered. Verse 15. This is how you shall make it the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Now, what's a cubit? Well, there are different actual cubits. They're all pretty close, but the most conservative estimate of what a cubit was would be 17.5 inches. That, that would be the smallest estimate of a cubit. And it, in many cases, cubits, depending on the culture, might have been larger than that. Okay? But going with the smallest estimate, and this is important, the ark would have been, based on this, you know, God's saying, 300 cubits by 50 by 30 cubits. When you build the ark, it would be 438 feet long, 72.9 feet wide, and 43.8 feet high. And by the way, this structure... Is perfect in dimensional layout for ships. It's what we use today in building boats. It's like an yeah, it, it is, and and that's what the ark was. You see these these cute little pictures of the ark, the little boat with a little thing up there and the a little house on it. That would go right over. I mean, I, and I, you know, I had an ark when I was a kid. Those little plastic ones in the bathtub. It just under, you know, <laughs> like Noah's drowning in the flood. You know. <laughs> But the Ark was like a barge. It was a large barge. It was huge, and it it, like a big tanker. When we watched the tankers come out here and go along the channel, the Gwim's channel there, that's somewhat similar to what the Ark may have looked like. It was the perfect dimensional layout. And, by the way, a boat like that, if it were to go up even a 90-degree angle on a wave, could very easily right itself again, no problem. Now, I don't know if Noah and his family went through 90 degree angle waves, it would have been a little while, but if he did, the ark was built to protect him, to keep him and the animals alive and safe. Verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark, and many think this window went all the way around the top of the ark, and actually served for both light and ventilation, and with all those animals, you want ventilation. And finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it, and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So there were three levels on the ark, and by the way, the word deck there is nests. God was thinking about the comfort of the animals. You will have a lower, and a second, and third nesting places where the animals can reside in the ark. It's interesting to me, and I think there is a connection here, that there was only one door on the ark. One way in, and man, when Noah and his family went in, God shut that door. And the door was not opened again except when all was right. But Noah and his family were saved only by going through one door. Jesus 10, verse 7 said, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And in John fourteen six, you know the verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One door. One way to salvation. One place to go to find protection. Verse 17. Behold I, even I, the Lord says, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life. That word breath is ruach, spirit, from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. This is the Noahic covenant. It's the first time a covenant is mentioned in the Bible. We'll read about it and study it in chapter 9. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, quick point. This was 120 years before the ark was finished and the flood came that God spoke to Noah about this. God knew something. That in 120 years, there would not be a single repentance on the face of planet Earth. As a pastor, I don't know how I deal with that. If I knew that for the rest of my life, I was to preach and teach God's word, but not one single person would listen. If I showed up here every Sunday night and spoke to the wall, I don't know how long I could do it. But no, did. And God long before it happened over a century said eight people are going into the ark Noah you're going to build that ark you're going to be a preacher of righteousness you're going to be a prophet of the end times and you are going to tell people what's coming but Noah I'm just going to give you a heads up something is coming but people are not like I said the more dense the population the more dense the people going on verse 19 and every, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. <laughs> of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you. So Noah didn't have to go out and get them. This was the first massive migration on planet Earth. They will come to you to keep them alive. Alive. Verse 21 asks for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for him. Now let's think about this for just a moment. <laughs> Two of every kind of animal in a boat with a guy and his family for a year. Come on. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. How do all those animals fit into one boat? How can you do that? You know, We always see those cute little caricatures of giraffes you know, sticking their necks out of the windows of the ark and using those like an elephant's trunk, which tells you if you're going to a flood, it's a good idea to bring your trunks. (laughs) But they're silly caricatures. And they're ark toys. And these toys and caricatures caricatures introduce doubt because we look at them and we go, isn't that silly? Isn't that ridiculous? A giraffe sticking its neck out a window. Where's a giraffe going to fit in an ark? Come on. I mean, it would be one thing if Noah was about to save all the mice in the world. I can believe that. Even all the sheep. I'll give them the sheep. We can get, you know, two of every, you know, get the... But two of every kind of animal? Elephants, giraffes, crocodiles. And the animals just eat each other all up. Well, one quick point on the eating thing. It wasn't until after the flood that animals and man ate meat. All animals on planet Earth were herbivores, not carnivores, until after the flood, according to Scripture. So they wouldn't be eating each other. You could have a crocodile rooming with a lamb, and it'd be okay. It'll be that way in the millennium as well. But that's, again, another study for another time. People look at this stuff, and they look at the ark, and they think about the animals, and they take this story of Noah, and they put it on a shelf next to Job and next to Daniel, and they go... Unbelievable. Cute. Interesting. In fact, what the Ark is in the flood story, it was just a myth. Propagated by early, less sophisticated, undeveloped man for the purpose of explaining things he couldn't possibly understand. You ever heard something like that before? Really? Well, here's the deal. When I was a kid, one of the biggest arguments I had with my father growing up was over math homework. I don't have that kind of mind. When I give you numbers and stuff here, I'm telling you I have to have it all written down very clearly so I can get it out and make sense of it. And trust me, I have to make sense of it for me before I can make sense of it for you. So it's not easy. I'm not a math-minded person. And I would sit there at my desk and I would look at long division and just go, breaking the pencil, you know, my dad would be sitting there going, Rick, just do the math. Just do the math. It's not that hard. And i go, it's hard for me. It's numbers and stuff. There's a letter in there. What's a letter doing with my math? I didn't get it. And my dad would say over and over and over, do the math. Just do the math. So that's what I say about Scripture. The problem that most people have when they come to Noah and the ark is they don't do the math. They just say a giraffe sticking his head out of a window, Ridiculous. And they just count it out of of hand. An elephant in the arm, come on. And they just count it out of hand. They don't take the time to sit down and do the math. Let's do just a little bit of quick math. I think this will help us. Biological taxonomists estimate that there are approximately 18,000 species of animals alive today. 18,000. Now, let's double that figure to 36,000 to account for extinct species. And then to allow two of each species, we'll take that up to 72,000, okay? And when I say species, I'm talking about an individual type of animal, right? There are many different groups within a species, but you have specific species groups. 18,000 of them, double that to allow for extinct species that we know from the fossil record animals that at one time live but no longer do, double that to 36,000, and then you've got to double it again to allow two of each species, as as the Bible claims, right? Takes us up to 72,000 animals. It's a lot of animals to get into a boat. In Genesis chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, God tells Noah to bring an extra five critters in the category of clean animals, okay? So to allow for those extra five, let's bump it up. Let's be liberal, 75,000. Okay? I think 75,000, it's a number that, that even, uh, again, biological taxonomists today, they could accept, yeah, that would probably be about, right, 75,000 animals. Now, listen closely to this. Utilizing the cubic measurements that we shared a moment ago, that is that the arc was 438 feet long by 72.9 feet wide by 48, 43.8 feet high, take those measurements, the volumetric capacity... The volumetric capacity of the arc would be roughly 1,400,000 cubic feet. This is a big boat. Now, 1,400,000 cubic feet equals the standard capacity of 522 standard-sized railroad cars. You have about 1,400,000 cubic feet in 522 standard railroad cars like you see going on the railroads today in America. Okay? So we have 522 railroad cars' worth of room to fit the animals in if we're looking at the arc. okay. Now consider this. Sheep are the perfect average size among animals. And when you look at the, the, you know, the bell curve literally of animals and sizes from the largest to the smallest, sheep are right about in the middle. So, if you average, take sheep as the average, one standard livestock car holds about 240 sheep. One livestock car. We've got 522 to put sheep in. Okay? 522 livestock cars would hold more than 125,000 sheep. After all the animals entered the ark, Noah would still have room for another 50,000 more. That's how big the ark was fifty thousand more. They say, Well, yeah, but Rick, they're animals a lot bigger than sheep. Yeah, but they're animals a lot smaller than sheep too. It goes both ways. Plus the fact when people say, Well what about the big guys? Elephants, giraffes, whales. Well, whales in marine life would have gotten along swimmingly. They didn't need the ark. Okay? As far as other large animals are concerned, it's likely that they were represented think about this by young versions. You didn't need a fully mature male elephant on the ark. You needed Little buddy and little buddyette, <laughs> And a baby elephant is about the size of a large sheep. And they go. Now, this makes sense. Okay, a big sheep. A well-fed sheep. But nonetheless, it makes some sense that, that they would be young, not only size-wise, but think about this. For a year, mating was not an option. So you take young creatures, or you don't take them, they're sent to you. And God in his wisdom drew the creatures he needed to have on the ark to protect and allow them to live. And now, thinking about man getting these creatures on the ark, 75,000 creatures on an ark that could hold 125,000 creatures. And when you think about the the animal phylum and the sizes, there are hundreds of thousands of teeny tiny little animals and, and insects and bugs and everything that could fit anywhere in the ark. Shoot, Noah could have built a pool deck and a vast dining hall, shuffleboard. I mean, he could have had a good time. <laughs> you know, I almost said that. I mean, I'd have to read anyway, okay. As we said before, if you honestly want to find answers in the Bible, seek and you will find. Folks, the word works. It works. Do the math. And if someone ever says to you, yeah, you can't get all those animals on the ark. That's ridiculous. You say, well, have you ever tried? And they'll think you're an idiot, you know, I'm going to take all the time to build an ark. No, no, I mean, just do the numbers. Just take out a pencil, figure out the size of the ark, figure out how many animals could fit in the size of the ark, and then figure out how many species there are, double, do it exactly what we just did. It's simple. The Bible is clear. The Word works. Now, this takes us down to the very last verse. You guys have been great tonight. You're hanging in great. Noah was truly an end times prophet who pleased the Lord. And Jesus pointed to him and to his times and Jesus said, take a lesson. Take a lesson. Matthew 24, 42, Jesus went on to say, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But you know, he just got done saying, but the days will be like Noah's. Do you see the parallel? I sure do. How do I live on the alert? Jesus said, the alert. How do I do that? I mean, does that just mean showing up at FCC in the book? Does it mean making sure I'm in my group, small group and reading the Bible? And how do I stay on the alert? I think verse 22 tells us exactly how to live on the alert. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Noah did everything God told him to do. That is living on the alert. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments Noah was able even as dark and horrifying and evil as the days were in which Noah lived he was able to follow God in his end times because verse 8 tells us Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord I used to always think that verse was about Noah it's not it's about the Lord Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord how did he do it? Folks, grace is already in the eyes of the Lord. All you have to do is look to him. Noah discovered grace that was already in God's eyes. It wasn't that God looked at Noah and said, Good guy, Noah. In fact, I don't like the translation that Noah found favor. Because again, it wasn't about Noah. All Noah did was believe. He just believed that God was God and that God would do what he says First Peter 3.12 the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer folks the eyes of God the eyes of the Lord are brimming with grace watching and waiting to see who will turn to face him and find grace there and I share this last thing with you Jesus in Matthew 24 implores us to be watching to be waiting for him Not to get caught up in the day-to-day struggles of our lives. Not to get concerned about things over which we have no control. But to be waiting and watching for Him. Looking for Him. For I'm telling you, at any moment He's bound to show up. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and I pray that this is encouraging it's as difficult as so much of the study was and, and seeing the world that Noah lived in oh, how awful was that but Father what unnerves me is I see the same thing in this world today I see the population just exploding I see the sexual aberrations I see the proliferation and procreation of evil we see the prevalent violence in the world around us and even some of the things that we shared tonight are stunning breathtaking in their darkness. But, Father, here we stand, having found grace in your eyes. Not, Lord, because we're good people. We're not. We struggle. We sin. We fall. We fail. But, Father, hear us as we say in our hearts together to you. We believe in you. We trust you. We know that you're coming. We know that this world ultimately is under your control and we know that one day soon you will return complete control of it to your son Jesus who will rule and reign and God we just want to be with him be with you for all eternity help us to be watchful help us to be wise and may we spend our time looking for and longing for you I pray in the name of Jesus Amen. Amen a whole chapter one night